morning. Join me in your Bibles, if you would, over the book of Colossians, the first chapter. Colossians 1. Um, I feel like I'm a little loud. It's, it's possible that it's just me up here with the sound coming back at me, but um, I'm speaking very softly. <laughs> um, just so you know, as we go throughout the study through Colossians, the reading each morning will be the parallel passage in the book of Ephesians. So what Michael read this morning is, is, is very, very similar. The Apostle Paul is describing or teaching the same biblical truths to the church at Ephesus that he's teaching to the church at Colossae, and he uses different um, terms, and on some levels he's explaining it a little bit differently, but it's very helpful if you take the time, even in your studies throughout the week, to use um, these two uh, passages of Scripture to understand each other, and then help you get a, a deeper grasp on the, um, the emphasis of uh, the church and Christ, Ephesians, the, the difference would be Ephesians is written about uh, Christ in the church and Colossians is about the Christ of the church. And so you have really more of a powerful emphasis on Christ in Colossians and you have more of a powerful emphasis on the church in Ephesians. But they're really just harmonizing together and, and, and they're a great uh, study to um, do at the same time. Before we get into our study this morning, just want to encourage you. I, Michael probably said something while I was out praying with the kids for camp, but the kids are going to camp this week, and uh, just pray that the Lord does a special work in their lives, as that is a significant time in their um, being nurtured for the Lord. And it's just this year, it's Katie May and uh, Autumn, and then also Alyssa is going as the counselor. So be in prayer for them uh, throughout the week, and uh, God will do a special blessing in their life. Just for uh, the sake of a review, uh, last week we talked about verses uh, 15, really started in verse 13 down to verse 23, which is uh, unpacks for us probably one of the most significant passages of Scripture as relating to the uh, supremacy or the preeminence of Christ. Uh, that Christ, and, and again, remember the book of Colossians is everything is in Christ and Christ is in you and you are in the church. And so the, the passage, the context last week was the significance of Christ and how everything is packaged into a person. And once you have that person, once that person lives within you, you now become a bearer of everything. You become a partaker of everything good. So the Christian life is no longer about pursuing things. It's not even about pursuing the benefits that Christ offers. It's about having Christ and then recognizing by faith that you have Christ. And by having Christ, you have everything there's nothing lacking for somebody who has Christ. There are, there are people who lack on, they lack in relation to implementing or, or acting upon their new standing in Christ or their new ability in Christ. There's a lot of that throughout scriptures of people who have Christ but yet never really get to a place where they know what it means to press into what he has brought to them. 
They never live in the power of Christ. They never live in the, the um, confidence of Christ. They never live in the peace of Christ. They never live in the um, presence. They, 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 they really they miss out on a lot of the things that come by a person having Christ, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they don't have Christ. What we want to do is we want to access the, the, the benefits that come from having Christ in us. And that's really what this next passage is about, the whole idea of Christ planting you, Christ, everything in Christ, Christ in you, and then Christ putting you in the church. The church is a place where you, by faith, act upon the truths of Christ in you. You carry those truths out. You put them into practice. You put them on display. And that's what the Apostle Paul is dealing with here as he closes out the um, closes out the chapter, which we will do this morning. So I want to I just read with you, and we're going to talk this morning about now that I'm a minister. And the Apostle Paul describes himself in the last part of this passage on the, on the basis, and remember this, on the basis of who Christ is and what he brings to the table, right? And that's what we read in verses 15 down to verse number 21. You know, he is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. He is before all things. Uh, uh, by him, all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, all, all even angelic uh, beings and, and spiritual beings were created by him. They were not only created by him, they were created through him and they were created for him. By him, all things exist and by him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church, which means he's, he's where all the thinking comes from. He is the fullness of God. He is the fullness of the Godhead in, in bodily form. He tells us that in chapter number two, that in him all of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Through him, he reconciled all things to himself or is reconciling all things to himself as well through the blood of his cross. This is who Christ is. This is what he brings into an individual who comes to embrace him by faith. And he takes and he makes an individual, verse 21 through 23, he comes and he takes an individual who was an enemy or an alien, somebody who was in, in opposition to God, somebody who was opposed to him, as Ephesians 2 says, and he makes him a companion. He makes him a friend. This is the, this is the regeneration. This is the new life that Christ brings. He takes somebody who is opposed to him and makes him a companion. He makes him a, a co-laborer or a partner. This is what Christ does when he comes to live within us. The apostle Paul comes to this understanding and he comes to this faith and he closes out this portion, the last uh, of verse of that portion, verse 23, is where we'll begin reading this morning. The scripture says, if indeed these things are true, and they're, let me say it this way, these things are effective in your life if you continue in the faith, okay? Once you, once you stop believing these things to be true, that's all this is saying. It's not because of your faith. It is that if you stop believing these things to, tr to be true, they are no longer effective for you. They're no longer going to have an impact on your life or the people's lives around you. 
You have to continue to walk in the faith. You have to continue to believe these things. You have to continue to trust these things to be a reality. You have to believe what Christ is and who Christ is and that he lives within you and he makes you acceptable before God. I was talking to one of my daughters this week. I won't tell you which one, but I was talking, you have a choice between four. So you have a 25% chance of getting it right, but good luck, I'm not gonna tell you who it was. I was talking to one of my daughters this week and we were just, I just was sharing with her how, how appreciative I am of her and how, how she makes me smile, I think the word, you make me happy. And, uh, and she wrote me back and said, I, I, I'm glad that I make you happy. I hope I make the Lord happy too. And, and my response back to her was, you do make the Lord happy because Jesus is inside of you. And I just wanted her to know that there's nothing that she can do to make the Lord happy the Lord is happy with her on the basis of the fact that God lives inside of her. And, and that is the only stipulation for God being happy with us. And I wanted her to know that there was nothing that she could do to make God more happy with her. It is, it is completely God's, God's happiness and God's kindness and God's grace towards us and his goodness towards us is not based upon our merits of that, is it? It's based solely on Christ's merits. And Christ merited all of those things, and then he shared them with us. Like, I'm going to make you a co-heir with me. You're going to, I'm going to live inside of you, and you're going to benefit from all of the things that I accomplished. Right? That's what, that's what the Apostle Paul said. We have to believe that. You have to believe that. And it's not just a passing mind. It's not just a passing thought. It's not just something that you have an intellectual assent to. It's, it's, you have to believe that. You have to embrace it as a reality. God is pleased with me on the basis of Christ. And then, and then that belief, that faith that you have put in Christ begins to produce and bear fruit in your life. And that's why he says in verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So the Apostle Paul, at the end of this, at the end of this uh, pericope of Scripture or this portion of Scripture, the Apostle Paul recognizes by faith that because of the work of Christ, he has become a what? He has become a minister. Because of the work of Christ, because of the significance of Christ, because of the importance of Christ, the Apostle Paul closes that portion of Scripture with, now I the Apostle Paul, or Paul, am a minister. And all of us have this now that I'm a blank moment in life. Now that I'm this or that, we can, we can connect changes or transitions or things that happen in our life on the, on the basis of a positional change. And now that I'm a father, I'll, I'll, life will never be the same again, Right? Now that I'm a mother, uh, things are, are not the same anymore. We all have these now that I'm a blank moments in life. And the Apostle Paul is having that moment. It's, it's now a, uh, a, a radical moment. It's now a, a more significant moment than any other thing. The Apostle Paul probably had a hundred things in his life that he could say, well, now that I'm a Pharisee, this happened. Or now that I'm the chief of Pharisees, this happened. But he probably had a bunch of now that I'm a blank moments in life, but none of them compared to this moment. 
And this moment for the Apostle Paul is now that I'm a minister. This phrase states that something has happened to my position in life that has impacted everything about my life. Something has happened to my standing in life that impacts everything that I do and think about in life. Something that is bigger than me has happened, which has added importance and significance to the to which the or that which have changed my perspective on life. Something big has happened. And because of that thing happening, I've become more significant and more responsible. That's what the Apostle Paul is communicating. That's why the very next word of uh, the very first word in verse 24 is the word now. He's he's, he's making an emphasis on time, referring to because of these things, now this thing has happened. I mentioned to you some, of, uh, some ways to think about this or to illustrate it a moment ago, but let me just read through them so we don't miss them. Now that I'm a husband, now that I'm a wife, now that I'm a parent, and now that I'm an employee, now that I'm a soldier, now that I'm an athlete, now that I'm a teacher, now that I'm a friend, now that I'm a teammate, now that I'm a Christian. For the Apostle Paul, the moment he became a Christian... He had a now that I'm a Christian moment. Life was no longer about the Apostle Paul. Life was no longer about the Apostle Paul. Of all people in the book of Philippians, Apostle Paul says if if anybody had the right to brag about their life, even from from a religious perspective, the Apostle Paul says, I have the right to brag. And he goes on to give us a list of things as to be, uh, I guess, reasons as to why the Apostle Paul had a right to brag about his Christianity. And then he says about all of the things that he had the right to brag about, he says, but now I count them as if they were what? Thank you for using that word. They are dung. I mean, that is exactly what the, the scripture says. They are dung. They are the, all of my righteousnesses are like filthy rags. They are dung. They are worthless. They are all of the, all of, I mean, that's what dung is. It takes everything inside of you and then it gets rid of the, gets rid of the waste. That's what it's referring to. That's how the Apostle Paul refers to all of the things that he has done that he could say, look, look at who I am. He says, that's all dung. Because in all of those things, he was lacking the most important thing, which was he didn't have Christ. And Christ is everything. So he has this now that I'm a Christian moment. Life is no longer about Paul. But Paul's life becomes far more important and far more significant and far more responsible on the, uh, in the reality of this moment, of this now moment. Some of these moments can be avoided in life, but others apply universally. For, for instance, all Christians experience the now that I'm a Christian moment. The Apostle Paul experiences this in this text, and he uses the term now that I'm a minister, these changes have happened. 
And I want to just give you three thoughts this morning from this text and from this, I, from this thought, now that, I'm a, now that I'm a minister, these things are going to happen or these changes ought to be taking place because we take on a whole new significance. We take on a whole new role. We all have these moments, and it's interesting if you think about it from the perspective of now that I'm a parent, or now that I'm a husband, now that I'm a wife, you think about all of those things. Those are all of the things that the world is trying to avoid, isn't it? They're just the things that the world, the world does not want the responsibility of being a husband or a wife or a parent, and all of these things the world is trying to avoid, and the Apostle Paul is, is making this statement on 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 behalf of the fact that now that I'm a now that I'm a uh, a uh, minister of Christ, there are certain things that are expected of me. And, and let me say this to you: the Apostle Paul doesn't run from that responsibility. He doesn't shy away from it. He doesn't adopt the world's philosophy of, well, I don't want any responsibility, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go down this path. Right? He embraces it. Now that I'm a Christian, now that I'm a a disciple of Christ, now that I'm a representation of Christ, things change. My responsibilities change. My representation changes. My importance changes. And it's no longer about us, which minimizes things, but now it becomes about Christ. And that's what the Apostle Paul is pointing out to us. If you were to take all of the things that we read in the verses before and understand that the Apostle Paul is saying this, I am a minister of this person who is the image of the invisible God, who is the first, we can go back, that's what the Apostle Paul is saying. You can't understand the emphasis, the power of the, of the, of the comment that now I'm a minister unless you understand the person for which you are ministering. And that's what the Apostle Paul points out is, is like, I am ministering for God, which makes our lives all that more important and all that more significant, which makes it not about us. When it's about him, it's never about us, or it ought not to be about us. Let's finish reading our text, and then we'll look at three things, and on your bulletin there, we'll walk through them together. Verse 24, it says, now, again, now is this moment, it's this time statement, now, on the basis of what I've just read, uh, what I've just stated before, on the basis of those things, and now I'm a minister of Christ. Now, things are different. Things are different now. Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of His body, that is the church of which I became a minister, according to the stewardship from God. That was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints, to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. 
There are three truths that I want you to consider from this passage of Scripture. Number one is, who is a minister? Number two is, what is a minister? And number three is, when I am a minister. So we'll break down each one of those very, very quickly and try to work through them in a timely way. First of all, who is a minister? The Apostle Paul obviously refers to himself here as a minister, and many people would take the Apostle Paul and kind of put him on a different plane because he was a apostle, capital A. He was one of the, uh, not original 12, but really one that was added to the original apostles by a supernatural working of the Christ appearing to him and making him an apostle. And so some would take this statement here about the apostle saying that he is a minister and they would distinguish him as a a minister that is different or unique from us as ministers. What I would like to present to you this morning is, is that every Christian is a minister in this way. Every Christian is a minister of Christ. Being a minister of Christ is inseparable from being a Christian a matter of fact, being a minister of Christ is that event or a part of the event that takes place when we become a Christian. And we become a follower of Christ. We become a servant of Christ. We become a minister of Christ the moment that we receive him by faith. We are brought into his family. We become a partaker of his uh, spirit. We become indwelt by his spirit. And we then, at that moment, become one of his ministers. It is impossible to be a follower of Christ without following Christ. It is impossible to be a servant of Christ without serving Christ. It is impossible to be a Christian without being a minister of Christ. So who are ministers? All believers are ministers. We're all called to minister for Christ. Uh, We can go to the Great Commission, which is given to all of us to go out. And as we go through life, we're to make disciples of everyone that we come into contact with. John 12 and verse 26 uses this same terminology. He says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And we have the same terminology used literally to describe those who will be with Christ in heaven. Those whom the Father will honor are those who follow and serve Christ. And this is the same terminology that's used to describe a minister of Christ. In other words, all people who are servants of Christ and followers of Christ are also ministers of Christ and also are children of Christ. This is not an and or Christianity. It's not, well, I want to go to heaven when I die, but I don't want to be a follower of Christ. This is a, we, when we become a co-heir with Christ, we become a follower of Christ. Ephesians 3, 7 uses the same terminology and says, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. Galatians talks about when the apostle Paul, the, the Lord revealed himself in the apostle Paul so that he could become a minister to the Gentile people. Every believer is, every believer is a minister of Christ. 
They are called, they are commissioned, if you will, at conversion. In other words, God has called you to a task, right? And a part of that task, a part of you accomplishing that task, before you were born, God had commissioned you to a task. He talks about Jeremiah. Before he was born, he was called to be a prophet. He talks about the same thing with Paul. Before he was in his mother's room, he was, it was already determined what he would be. So we've all been, from the foundation of the world, we've all been created for a purpose. Amen? And a part of you accomplishing that purpose is that you must be indwelt by his spirit. You must be one of his. You, you can't accomplish it on your own. You can't carry out what God has called you to, what he has commissioned for you to do. So he has commissioned you before the foundation of the world to do something, and then a part of that is making you his own, making you a part of his family. That's a part of the process. I would venture to say that that's the most important part of the process. There's nothing that we can accomplish or do without the indwelling Holy Spirit working through us and in us to accomplish it. So if God calls the apostle Paul to be a minister to the Gentiles, it's pretty likely that he's going to save him at some point, right? <laughs> right? God calls Jeremiah to be a, a prophet in the Old Testament. It's likely that he's going to save him at some point and bring him to a point where he's usable in that way. God has called you. God has commissioned you to a task. Before you were even born, you were commissioned to a task. And a part of that process is, a, a large part of that process is he's going, to, he's going to empower you to accomplish that task by indwelling you. And that's what salvation is. So who are, who are ministers of Christ? All who believe. All who are saved. All who would consider themselves a beneficiary of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. All of those who call themselves co-heirs with Christ. All of us are ministers of Christ. No one is exempt from it. No one is exempt from it. Christianity is not about you getting your way. Think about it. Jesus Christ is God the Son, right? He comes to this earth to fulfill his will or to fulfill the will of his Father who is in heaven. Why is he presenting to us? What is he showing us? He's showing us submission. He's showing us obedience. He's showing us that that is the way that the Lord has called us. That is the, the path that the Lord has called us to. He tells his disciples in John 20, verses 21 through 23, Jesus says to them, his disciples again, peace be with you. As the Father hath sent me, even so I am sending you. And he said that after he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And then he says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. In other words, the Lord Jesus Christ commissions the apostles to go out and to preach the gospel. And the gospel will condemn some, and the gospel will forgive some. But he's commissioning them to the same exact task that he was commissioned to while on the earth. He has commissioned us. It is the, it is the, it is the truth of Colossians that we, the, the whole part of Christ in me, and, and the, the, the verse here that says that we are filling up what is lacking on Christ's part is that we are carrying on what Christ finished. 
We've talked about that already. Who is a minister? All believers are ministers of Christ. Number two in your notes, what is a minister? What is a minister? We, we, we talked about a few words already that are important, I think, to understanding what a minister is. A, a servant um, was one of the terms, a helper. Let me give you some other terms. The word that, the Greek word that we get or that is translated into um, a minister here is diakonos. And this word, we get our word in the English deacon from it. And it just simply means somebody who is a, a waiter or a servant. If you, you ever go to a restaurant, you have a waiter that comes to your table and they, their job is to get you whatever you need. And they come back and they, they come back over and over again. And they say, is there anything else I can get for you today, sir or ma'am? Um, would you like another drink, sir or ma'am? And they're, they're there to wait upon your needs and your desires, right? If they do a really good job, then you give them a nice little tip. But they're, they're, a, they're a diakonos. They're a deacon. They're a servant in the same way that we are to Christ. We are to come to him and say, Lord, what would you have me to do today? What is it that you, what are, what is it about your work or your ministry that you would like me to accomplish today? Why have you stationed me here today to accomplish? What task have you called me to accomplish? Does that, does that make sense? We are, we are a, we are a waiter on the Lord's, not, not, we are, it's, it's interesting. We are, we are carrying out the Lord's purposes while serving other people. So we go to him for instruction, we go to him for guidance, but when we bring the drinks back, we don't bring them to him, we bring them to, his, to people. We serve, we serve him by serving people. That's what the church is all about. So it, 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 it's the idea of the term for servant or minister here is that we are a, a waiter, an attendant, or an errand boy. You know, go and get me this, or go and get me that, or go and do this for me. And our response to all of those commands ought to be, yes, sir, right? Hey, yes, sir, whatever you, whatever you require of me, if I understand who you are and what you are calling me to, then my response to Christ telling me what to do ought to always be, yes, sir, I will do what you ask me to do. Unfortunately, in, in our modern day, in our modern world, who is the waiter in our relationship with Christ? In modern culture, who is the waiter in our relationship with Christ? It is Christ, isn't it? He's coming saying, what would you like, sir? What would you desire, sir? What do you want, sir? True? We go to him in prayer. We don't go to him and say, Lord, what would you have me to do today? Why have you positioned me in this place today? What are you working out in my life today? What do you want me to do for your kingdom? We often come to the Lord saying, Lord, please make sure that you do this well. Please do this this way. And we come to him as the commander, and he is the waiter on our needs and our desires and our wants. It is absolutely backwards to what this idea of being a minister of Christ really truly means. Jesus actually tells his disciples, those of you who want to be great in the kingdom, those of you who want to be significant in the kingdom, you will be what? You will be the least of everybody. You will be the least. It means you'll walk around with the rag over your arm and you will say, how can I serve you? How can I serve you? How can I serve you? Unfortunately, what we have become as modern Christians is, how can you serve me? How can you serve me? How can you serve me? And what we've done, even far more blasphemous than just asking people to serve us, is we've made God into that type of a servant. 
We are to be an errand boy for the Lord. We have been called into his church. He has saved us. He has sanctified us. He has placed his spirit within us. And now he has called us. He's commissioned us to carry out a task, commissioned us to do a work. And we're, our job as, as uh, deacons or ministers or whatever you want to call it is to carry out what God has called us to do, what, whatever it might be. We should come to the Lord every day with an open slate. Lord, what do you want me to do today? It's like it's so interesting because the Lord might take your normal scheduled program and turn it upside down on its head because your normal scheduled program might not fit his divine orchestrated program. And when his divinely orchestrated program doesn't fit our normally scheduled program, what does it do to our thinking? Worry, frustration, complaining, murmuring. It's not... Because why? Why would we have that response if he truly is the master and we're there to, it's like, it's like the lady at the, you know, the lady comes and says, what can I get for you today? And you're like, I'd like a Coke or a Pepsi. And then later they come back and say, I didn't really like that Pepsi. Would you bring me a tea? I'm not going to bring you a tea now. Well, that's going to lose, she's going to lose some of her, um, she's not going to get as big of a tip by having that attitude, is she? We're, we're, we're that way with God, aren't we? We have our normal scheduled program that we think ought to be coming to fruition and God says, I'm going to to turn it on its head. And then we have to be asked, who's the servant? A, 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 A scholar or a preacher once said this, you know somebody has a servant's heart by watching their response when treated like one. Really powerful statement. You know someone has a servant's heart by watching their response when you treat them like a servant. And I'm not encouraging anybody to go around here and treating people like servants, but what I would say to you is this, is I can know I have a servant's heart when I'm treated like a servant and by how I respond to that. It's one who executes the commands and the desires of another. Our ultimate, our ultimate example of this is obviously Christ. All that he did and all that he was was in submission to the Father, was in service to the Father, was in obedience to the Father. He made himself humble. He made himself humiliated. In all of this he did because the Father asked him to do so. And do we ever see him complain? Do we ever see him murmur? Do we ever see him question God? He is the perfect example. Matter of fact, he tells us in um, the uh, Peter's epistle that he was he was an example set for us so that we might know how we ought to suffer. Romans fifteen verse eight says, "I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs." Matthew 20 and verse 28 says, Even so, the Son of Man hath not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Who are servants? All believers are servants. What are servants? Servants are those who wait on somebody else's needs, desires, wants, commands, and carries them out, responds to them. Number three this morning, number three, 
Nobody likes to have that happen in the middle of service. Perfect transition to our last point this morning. And we'll spend a little bit more time on this point. This, this brings us to our last, uh, really the last, the, the majority of our text. When I am a minister. When I am a minister. In other words, these, this last part, verses 24 through 29, the Apostle Paul describes some things about himself that are directly connected to him coming to realize that he is a minister of Christ. And I just believe this with all my heart, that you'll never embrace these things until, I will never embrace these things until I embrace who I'm a minister for. You have to have a, you have to have a master that is bigger than you. You have to have a cause that is bigger than you. You have to have a purpose that is bigger than you in order to carry out what the Apostle Paul is going to call the Church of Colossae to carry out. There has to be, if, you're, if, you're, if your calling, commissioning, and salvation is not bigger than you, then these things will be impossible. This now that I'm a minister will not apply to you until you understand the sufficiency and the significance and the supremacy and the um, preeminence of the one who you serve. When you grasp who Jesus is as your master, there is nothing that he can call you to do or ask you to do that you will not say yes to. There's nothing. But you have to grasp who he is first. And that's why the Apostle Paul lays it out the way that he does to the church of Corinth, of, of Colossae. Once you realize that you are a minister of God and that you are a minister for the sake of his body, the church, your ministry will never be the same. One of the things that you'll notice as we read through the text is the fact that it, it, there are several for the sake of the church, for the sake of his body, for the sake of the word of God being fully known, for the sake of this, for the, but it's never for the sake of me. It's never for the sake of me. That would contradict what the Apostle Paul is trying to present here. It's never for the sake of me. The Apostle Paul is going to give us four fundamental attributes to his realizing now that I'm a minister. Are you a minister? Are you a minister? As a Christian, you are. These four things should be true about us. The first of these four is, I rejoice in suffering. Verse 24, now I rejoice in my suffering. That is really the statement, and he goes on to describe what that looks like. He rejoices in his suffering for their sake, which is a reference to the church. He rejoices in his suffering for Christ's sake, because he is carrying out what Christ has accomplished. He is, he is, he is, not, he is not adding to, he is not supplementing what Christ has accomplished. Christ has accomplished all things. In Christ is the fullness of all things that we need for a relationship with God. What we do as Christians is we, we carry out the ministry of Christ. We rejoice in suffering for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking on Christ, in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me 
for you to make the word of God fully known. And we'll look at that part here in a moment. I rejoice in my suffering. No one understood suffering more or better than the apostle Paul did. The apostle Paul was noted for his suffering. The other apostles were also noted for their suffering, but the apostle Paul, because he was really the primary author of the New Testament, uh, authoring at least half of the books in the New Testament, if not more, depending on who you credit Hebrews to, the apostle Paul is noted for his suffering. Matter of fact, whenever he is affirming his ministry, whenever he's defending his ministry, whenever he is commending himself in the ministry, he never commends himself on the basis of his successes. He always commends himself on the basis of his, on the basis of his suffering. 100% of the time, the Apostle Paul commends himself as a follower of Christ, as a minister of Christ, as one who has been called by Christ, not on the basis of his success or his strength or his might, but rather on the basis of his suffering, of his weakness, and of his rest in Christ. He writes this letter from prison. Why is he in prison? Because he preaches the gospel of Christ. He tells them in the very last verse of this book, please remember my chains. He wants them to know where he's writing. He wants them to know where he's writing from. He wants them to know the context of it. The apostle Paul is is saying that I'm not asking you to do something that I first am not an example of. He warns Timothy and his letter to Timothy, all those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. He commends himself as a servant of the Lord by pointing to his suffering. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 4 and 5, he says this, but as a servant of God, we commend ourselves in every way. And he's going to go on to describe what every way means by endurance in affliction, in hardship, in calamities, in beatings, in imprisonments, in riots, in labors, in sleepless nights, in hunger. I could think of a better list, right? I mean, Apostle Paul could think of maybe a more, a more uh, uh, modern day list. But no, he commends himself on the basis of his enduring in all of these things. In the book of 2 Corinthians, which is the probably without question the most strong defense of the Apostle Paul's um, ministry, he defends his ministry on the basis of his suffering. He says this to capture it in 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 9, after speaking to the Lord about taking away an infirmity that he had brought to him, the Apostle Paul says, But he said to me, my grace, the Lord says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. And the apostle Paul's response is, therefore, I will boast the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ might rest upon me. The apostle Paul says that as a minister of Christ, it is important that we that we are joyful in our affliction, that we rejoice in our suffering. 
And the idea of rejoicing is not, is not uh, it, it, it carries with it the idea of a deep-rooted joy that we, um, some people would confuse it with a deep-rooted joy that doesn't display itself on the outside. This joy, this rejoicing in suffering is a, is a deep-rooted joy that does display itself on the outside. It's not like people that walk around saying, I, I'm joyful on the inside, but, but I sure am complaining on the outside. I mean, you have Christians that say that. Well, deep down inside, there's a real peace inside of me, but it just hasn't made its way on the outside of me yet. Listen to me. The emphasis of this text is, the, is how Paul impacts the church. It doesn't matter what's deep-rooted in Paul's heart. What matters is what is Paul displaying to the people around him. What is Paul showing those around him? That, that joy, that rejoicing in suffering is something that the, that the Apostle Paul is, being, is calling the Colossian church to display. To put on display for the world to see. For other believers to see. Why is it that it's important that we are rejoicing in suffering? Not just on the inside, but also on the outside. Just two simple reasons under that point. Number one is it is an example to the church of the value. Listen to me. It is an example to the church of the value of Christ. Your joyful suffering for Christ shows the value of Christ. Murmuring and complaining in our suffering shows and minimizes the value of Christ. Joy in our suffering maximizes the value of Christ. Why? Because what we're saying in joy and suffering is, is that Christ is more important than our circumstances. Right? And we all say that with our mouth, but it is sure difficult to live it, isn't it? Suffering as a ministry of Christ, suffering as the minister of Christ is an honor. Suffering as a minister of Christ is an honor. He tells us in Acts chapter number 5 and verse 41, then they left the presence of the council in which they were being persecuted, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. That's weird, right? That's weird. They walked out of a moment of suffering and persecution, and we don't even know the depths of what persecution they faced in that moment. And they walked out with a visible rejoicing. The apostle Paul is in prison. He's in, he's in, he's in chains, and he's, his feet are buckled together, and his hands are buckled together, and he's, and he's doing what? With Silas. He's singing praises to the Lord, and everybody in the prison gets saved. Right? If I, was in the, if I was in that prison, I would be leading the, the complaint department. Right? If it's just being honest, it's like, I don't, I don't get that. I don't understand that. But it comes from not embracing or understanding who I am serving and what I am representing when I am serving Christ. That those people around me, those other prisoners are watching me to see, hey, here's the guy that preached that gospel out there on the street about Christ being bigger than our problems, Right? Let's just see how much bigger he is than our problems. And the Apostle Paul is sitting in there singing, you know, great is thy faithfulness, right? What? And then the gates opened up and and everybody stays in the prison. What's that all about? 
That's about a bunch of people that have embraced a God bigger than their situation. And they could have all just run. You don't, we don't know what was in that prison. There probably were murderers in there awaiting being, uh, being killed themselves. And they just stay there. Why? Because, because he presented to them by his actions a, a Christianity, a Christ that is bigger than them. Why is it important that we rejoice in our suffering? Because we are, we are being an example to the, to the church around us, <coughs> to the people around us of the value of Christ. And because we are reflecting on the glory of Christ. We are reflecting on the glory of Christ. How we respond to suffering is a reflection on the glory of our Lord. Think about it this way. Hebrews 12 and verse 2, it says, Looking to Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. Do you know what that's describing? That's describing the glory of Christ. We're meant to carry that message on. We don't complete it. We don't add to it. We don't, we don't finish it. We carry it. As a reflection of the glory of Christ, we rejoice in our suffering. Doesn't mean we don't suffer. Doesn't mean we don't act like we're going through suffering. It means our attitude towards suffering is so different. It's unique. It's Christ-centered. I tell, I tell my son the other day, we were talking about just some different things that were going on. I don't even remember the exact details of it. So I said to him, you know what, son? I said, the, the problem is, is we say we believe God is sovereign until something doesn't go our way. And we're the worst about that. I mean, the, the sovereignty of God churches are just like preaching the sovereignty. I mean, we love the sovereignty of God until, it, until his sovereignty doesn't match up with our sovereignty, right? And we rejoice in our suffering because why? Because Christ is bigger. Because we want the world around us to know that Christ is more important and more significant and and he is more valuable and he is more glorious than our circumstances. Let's go on to number two. He says this. The second thing that he does as a minister of Christ is found in the end of verse number 25. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. So he calls us a stewardship. I'm not going to deal a lot with that. But know this, that we're stewards of the things that God has given us. These are not our they're not ours, they're his. We're managing them, right? Everything that a Christian has is managing because God has put it on loan to him. And one day you'll stand before him and give an account for what you did with what he lent to you. It's not yours, it's his. That's what the talent story is all about in, in the Gospels. He says this, to make the word of God fully known. And that's our second thought. As a steward of Christ or as a minister of Christ, I make much of the gospel. The hidden mysteries from ages and generations and now revealed to all the saints. To them God chose to make known the great, 
how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Let me just say a few things about I make much of the gospel. The text says two things to us about making much of the gospel. Number one, the apostle Paul says that he made much of the gospel as a minister so that all the world might know the gospel. He says that the gospel might be fully known. And the implications of that statement is is that everyone might know it. What is the Apostle Paul drawing a parallel here in the, even in the book of Colossians is that the gospel is not just for the Jews anymore, but it's now for the Gentiles. And in this context, because of the Gnostics of the day, the gospel is not just for the intellectual, but it's for the common man. When the word of God was written in the English language, it was given to us in the English language back in the 1600s for the purpose of what? So that the common man could read it and understand it. That's why it was given to us, so that we could read the Word of God and we could understand it ourselves. The Word of God is clear all throughout the Scriptures, even in John 3 and verse 16, which we know, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. The the main contrast in John 3 and verse 16 is this, the gospel is not just for the Jews, but it's also for the Gentiles. And all of you Gentiles that are here this morning can say, praise the Lord, amen. Amen. That means we get, in, we, get, we get invited into that reality. We can be thankful that the Gentiles rejected Jesus. Because it, the Jews, thank you very much, Natalie. <laughs> See, my wife is not here. I just look over to Natalie. <laughs> the, the Jews rejected the Gospels because we can have it as Gentiles. So that all may know the, so that all may know the Gospel. The gospel is to be preached to everyone. Um, Back in Ephesians, it talks about, Apostle Paul refers to himself as the least of all the saints. 1 Timothy 1.15, he refers to himself as the chief of sinners. Um, Everybody needs to hear the gospel. There's no limit on who it is. That's what the Great Commission is. But not only that, the Apostle Paul, as a minister, not only is concerned about everybody knowing the gospel, the Apostle Paul was worried about everybody knowing. He, he even says, I want to go to places where nobody has heard the gospel. And he, he wanted to be about the gospel everywhere. But he also wanted everybody to know the fullness of the gospel. So he not only says, I want everybody to know the gospel, but he says, I want everybody to know the riches of the gospel. Like there's more to it than we all know. And we, we would all agree to that, that there's more to the gospel than we know. There is riches, there is wealth that still needs to be mined, right, in the gospel. And the more we study his word, the more we mine up those things, like the truth of Christ in you, the hope of glory. That is not a, that is not a surface level truth. That's a rich, deep truth. And you better be mining that truth all the time. Christ is in you, and therefore there is a hope of glory. He not only is concerned about the, as a minister of Christ, it's not just our concern that everybody hear the gospel, but it ought also to be our concern that everybody understand the fullness of the gospel. And that comes by our studying and our efforts that we put forth in in understanding the gospel ourselves. We don't oversimplify it, nor do we make it difficult. We present it as it is presented in his word. So the Apostle Paul, as a minister, he made much of the gospel in that he wanted everybody to know it, and then he wanted everybody to know it in its fullness. Number four, 
as a minister of Christ, I live for the sanctification of others. He says, him, verse 28, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone. And there's just two things that the Apostle Paul refers to in regards to his sanctifying of people. Number one is, he warns them. Who do we warn? We warn the lost, right? We warn the lost about coming judgment. Who do we teach? We teach the saved. We teach those who are believers so that they will become more into the image of Christ. The Apostle Paul says, as a minister of Christ, we warn everyone. And notice the word everyone used three times. Everyone, everyone, everyone. In other words, everyone who is lost, we warn. Everybody who is saved, we teach. But we're constantly doing the work of a minister. We're constantly pointing people to Christ. Warning everyone, teaching everyone in all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Our goal is to bring sanctification to every individual that we come into contact with. Why? So that they might be complete in Christ. The word complete, some versions say mature, but the the idea of it is, is that they may be complete. They may be not just indwelt by Christ, but that Christ might be their source of all things. We live for the sanctification of others. This is where the church comes in. It's like, our, listen, here's what the Apostle Paul is saying. My goal is not that I will be presented before God mature in Christ. Right? He doesn't say that. Here's what he says. My goal is that we will be presented before God as one, as mature in Christ. What is he talking about? He's talking about the church. The Apostle Paul's focus was each individual in the church working out the sanctification of each other so that we might all stand before God, get this, together. Not as churches, but as the church. And we might be accepted and be complete and be whole and be one in him. We need to understand this. If the church is going to be mature in Christ, it cannot be selfish. It cannot be about me or any individual. It must be about the whole. If you're not working towards, I'm being honest with you as a church body, if you're not working towards this group being presented before God, acceptable, not just acceptable in their position, but acceptable in their practice, then you're not carrying out what Christ has commissioned us to carry out. That's what our calling is. That's what our commissioning is, is to make others ready so that we can all be presented to him together. It's so amazing. I think of Hebrews 10, verse 24 and 25. It's a very um, well-known verse of scripture, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. In our modern day today, everybody forsakes the assembling of yourselves together, right? It is just not important. It's literally the last thing on the agenda. And here's why. Because the assembling of ourselves together has become about me. 
The very verse before it says this. It says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. The reason why I come to church on Sunday is not for me. It's for you. It's for others. When I get that mindset, I can come to church no matter how I'm feeling because I'm not coming for my benefit. Yeah, you will, Lord willing, you will benefit from it, but I am coming for the benefit of others. The church has to have an other's mindset if it's going to accomplish God's commissioning in their life. Ephesians 4, 15, and 16, you can read it in your own time, and then 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14 and 15. The last thought this morning is simply this. I toil in the power of the Holy Spirit. He says at the end of our text here, verse, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. I want you just to think about this, and I'm going to close. Ministry isn't easy. He uses this term here, toil, for a reason. He doesn't want us to think of it as being something that was going to always be easy. The word literally means to sweat, to be a burden, to be a hard thing, to make you tired. The ministry being called of the Lord is not an easy task. Number two, remember this. Being a minister demands your effort. Some people say, well, if, I'm, if it's the Lord's work, if the Lord is doing it through me, then I just need to sit back and just watch it happen. He'll, he'll accomplish what he wants to accomplish. And you know what? In reality, he will accomplish what he wants to accomplish, but he wants to invite you into the journey. You must actively pursue You must say, Lord, what would you have me to do today? And then you must put forth 100% effort in what he calls you to do. 1 Corinthians 15, 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Ministry is not easy. Ministry demands effort, and ministry requires dependence. You must be dependent on the Lord's work, on the Lord's strength. You must be dependent on the Lord's strength. In closing, now that I'm a minister, now that I'm a minister, you are called to rejoice in suffering as a reflection of Christ, as a display of his glory, and as a focus on the importance of eternity. That's what it means, the hope of glory. You are called to make much of his gospel to all the world and the fullness of the gospel. You are called to serve others for the benefit. You are called to serve Christ for the benefit and sanctification of others. And you are called to labor in the power of his spirit. Remember this. Now that I'm a minister is a more important statement than now that I'm a professional athlete. It is more important than now that I'm a parent, more important than now that I'm a boss, more important than now that I am the president of the United States of America. Now that I'm a minister connects you to the most important purpose 
the most important person that exists. What will you do now that you're a minister? Let's pray. Father, we do pray today as we come by faith into uh, even a deeper appreciation for what we've been called to an understanding of who we are and we come into your presence and now we can, Lord, almost say, what would you have us to do today? What would you want us to do? And, and that we would take your, your calling, your um, instruction, and we would go and do it to the fullest of our strength. We pray that you would help us to have a deep understanding of these truths, that Christ is in us and, and that we can accomplish much in his strength and power. Please walk with us through this time together, Lord. Be who you are and help us to recognize that. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.